Welcome to Venture Voice. This is Greg Gallant. I am really excited to bring you this interview with Reid Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. It's a bit unusual because I'm bringing you a recording from over a decade ago, from 2006. You're probably thinking, did podcasts even exist in 2006? But they did. I started this podcast in 2005. Reid was one of my early guests. And this podcast is so fun to go back and listen to and dig it out of the archives. Now, let me take you back to 2006. It's not that long ago, but it's kind of hard to remember what life was like back then because now LinkedIn's so ubiquitous, it's like the air. But back in 2006, most professionals did not have an online profile. The idea of putting your resume or something like your resume online was taboo. The idea was if you had your resume online, it meant you were looking for a job, which would be a bad signal to send your current employer, and maybe even that you were desperate for a job, that people didn't want to hire you, so you had to put your resume out there. So that's the world that LinkedIn walked into. Reed was coming in and saying, hey, everyone should essentially put your resume online for the whole world to see. When I recorded this podcast in 2006, I was living in New York at the time, as I still do. I flew out to California. I drove to LinkedIn's headquarters down in Silicon Valley. They only had 56 employees. I sat down at the table with Reed. He was gracious enough to feed me lunch. They had free sandwiches for all their employees. At the time, a cold sandwich seemed like a great free perk at a startup. Now, of course, we know they all have executive chefs and that. But LinkedIn pictured 56 employees Reed talks about how at the time they had 7.2 million users, which sounds like a lot until you consider it still means most people you know don't have a LinkedIn profile, that it's still kind of this niche thing. I remember talking to friends who didn't even know what LinkedIn was. And now, of course, LinkedIn has grown over 100 times that size. They have over 700 million users. They still had a huge challenge ahead of them. Lots of social networks get to a few million users and then flame out. Yet Reed found a way to make LinkedIn ubiquitous. And of course, now it's a huge company. It's a division of Microsoft. But if it were an independent company, it'd probably be valued at hundreds of billions of dollars. And Reed has since become a billionaire himself. But going back to this podcast in 2006, I think you see the clues for why Reed was so successful. And as a philosophy major myself, you know, I got to hand it to him. Reed studied philosophy, not business. You can see he's all about thinking through what are the motivations of the users? How can he deliver lots of value for the users so they'd want to use LinkedIn year round, day in, day out, not just when they're searching for a job? We always evolve our story over time. So to go back in time to hear what the person is saying when they're in the fire is so much fun. At the time when I recorded it, I was a really fledgling entrepreneur. We had one or two people working with me. Now my company has over 80 employees. So it's actually more employees than Reed Hoffman had at LinkedIn at the time. He only had 56 employees when we recorded this, which again is just why it's so fun to go back and listen to you know, what these now billionaires, these mammoth companies were thinking about when they were just getting started and how something pretty small can become really big, how a challenger brand that, you know, most people have never heard of and seems just insignificant in the scheme of the business world 
can become something like LinkedIn, which is just everybody's on it. You know, I can't, I don't know any CEOs or people even starting in their career that aren't on LinkedIn today. I just find it so cool to remember the things that we view today is just essential infrastructure of the internet. We're one day startups like the rest of us. And that, you know, as big as we are, we can always keep growing and uh, find ways to reach and help more users and more customers. Hope you enjoy this podcast and stick around to the end. Uh, Again, I'll tell you a little bit more about my own entrepreneurial journey and the insights that I took from this show that I think can be helpful to you. Enjoy. Reed, welcome to Venture Voice. Great to be here. So tell me a little about how you started in your career and when you first realized that entrepreneurship was a thing for you, where you first had that bug in you to start a business. It's actually probably a little bit of an odd story. Um, When I graduated from Stanford, what I wanted to do was be a public intellectual. At the time, I thought it was someone who writes like essays for the New York Review of Books or Atlantic Monthly or whatnot. And I was going to go be an academic as a way of doing this. I went to Oxford. And then I realized that the problem with being an academic is you write books that 50 people listen to, right? Or read, right? Listen to in the case of a podcast. And um, I wanted to actually kind of participate on a much broader stage because what motivated me about public intellectuals is you hold up a lens of who we who we are and who we should be, both as an individual and as a society. And what I realized was if you actually looked at software and you looked at online services as the as media objects that could do this, you could go create really valuable media objects that would have a much deeper transformative effect on society where you hold out that lens and help people evolve to who they should be or who they want to be or that sort of thing. So I went to Oxford and I came back and then I went, okay, I want to do startups. And so I went and talked to a couple of VCs. I guess this was in the fall of 93 when I first came back and they said, well, what's your work experience? And I said, well, I've I've interned at Xerox Park and I've interned at SRI International. And they're like, no, 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 no. What's your work experience? Mm-hmm. Like, like, have you shipped software before? And I was like, oh, uh, not yet. <laughs> and they said, go get a job. And then when you learn some things, come back and talk to us. So I went to Apple Computer um, eWorld because I basically decided that online was the thing that would be the major media transformation of, you know, kind of more than our generation, like a number of generations. And it, it's the right kind of thing that creates like new possibilities for how people can express themselves, community, I mean, obviously podcasting as part of this. And then went from there to a place called Fujitsu and did my first startup, uh, SocialNet, in 1997. Because the idea was basically you can configure the electronic space in a way you can't configure a uh, physical space. And SocialNet was obviously very focused on dating. Because the thought is, you ask a single person what they most want. It's like, okay, I'd like to connect. I'd like to find somebody. And the person may be a mile that you know, a mile away from you. You'd never know because you can't figure it out that way. But you can make cool stuff electronically. And started with SocialNet. Learned a whole bunch of lessons about entrepreneurship. One of my friends, Peter Thiel, who was the CEO and co-founder of PayPal, once said of his startup experience at PayPal that he's um, never learned so much in his life except from maybe between the ages of two and three. And the very first time you're doing startups is exactly like that. It's like, oh, my God, like, just, like it, drinking from a fire hose is kind of a too tame of a metaphor. <laughs> right? So um, so SocialNet was that first experience. And then when Peter and his co-founder, Max, started PayPal in December 98, they got me to join the board and help them. And then later I joined operationally, uh, ran all external affairs, BD, Corp Dev, a bunch of other stuff at PayPal, and then um, uh, sold PayPal to eBay. And then during that um, summer, I was kind of like, ah, 
what do I do next? And at the time, it was kind of like, okay, do I take time off or do I go do this professional networking thing, this vision that I have of how LinkedIn can actually change the world? Because part of the idea for everything that I personally do, whether it's uh, an investment, a board gig, or uh, especially my own personal time, is there's always a big, like, yes, a good economic entity and a good business, but a change the world thing, make a difference in people's lives. And I decided the time was to do LinkedIn, so I didn't take much time off. I assembled a small group of people in December '02, started coding, and in um, May '03 we launched. So tell me about this ride. Like, what was like the biggest lesson you learned back with your first venture, and what happened with it with SocialNet? So SocialNet eventually got sold to a thing that was called MatchNet.com, that's now known as Spark Networks, and has kind of small world. A friend of mine, David Simonoff, is now running it, and. Um, the couple key lessons. So one is most people tend to think in startups, especially because most people oriented towards startups are product people. They have, they have this product they think will change the world. They envision it. Financing strategy is more key than product strategy. Like product strategy is important, but basically if you can't get enough capital to get your business off the ground, and usually it's a successive set of influxes of capital, your business fails and it goes away. Right, because the difference between being a dollar profitable and a dollar not profitable is immortality and death. <laughs> right. So, you know, the whole idea is to create these organizations that may have a chance of living forever of being a self sustaining entity. So one thing was a whole financing strategy and, and how much you relate to what capital markets currently do. So, you know, ninety seven was kind of just the beginning of the the boom. And what we should have been doing is what a lot of other people were doing, which is going out there and saying, Everyone on the internet's going to join SocialNet and it's going to be everything and raise $50 million. Instead, we raised just a little bit of money and you know, tried to prove out a, a concrete business model, which is much better to do now, <laughs> right, than then. Uh, we also learned things about, like, for example, uh, one of the ways that I currently describe venture investment is venture investment is like marriage on two PowerPoint presentations and a dinner. And so you got to be really careful about who you're essentially getting married to, right? And and it's both direction. Is it an operational partnership? Does it work well? And then, you know, kind of a whole set of other lessons. Like, for example, there's this old saying about retail, which is there's three words of retail, location, location, location. Well, consumer internet, there's also three words, and it's distribution, distribution, distribution. So a consumer internet venture is basically only successful if you have some form of natural distribution. Now, people frequently describe this as virality, and there's a bunch of different viral mechanisms that can work. And there's both art and science to that. But if you don't have a natural distribution, your consumer internet thing won't work. It's over, right? Sure, eBay, Yahoo paid a bunch of money for TV advertising, but they did that after already they had an enormous amount of natural distribution. And it's especially true for startups now. So those are kind of some of the early lessons for kind of what I learned from my first go-round. There was a time at PayPal, this is kind of a funny story, where we were growing at 5% of transactions per day, right? So it was a 5% compounding day. We had three customer service people in the back of the office. Uh, we were going in the hole, I believe, about 8,000 emails a day, right, in terms of emails we weren't responding to. And even though the telephone number of the company was only listed in the local Palo Alto directory, Enough irate customers who were unable to reach customer service, of course, were finding out that we were in Palo Alto, calling the Palo Alto directory, finding the main line number, and calling the main line number and dialing extensions at random that basically between about 6 a.m. and midnight, 
You just had to pick up any phone in the office and you could talk to an irate customer. (laughs) They were ringing all the phones. So, of course, we turned all the phones off to, you know, just muted the things and used our cell phones because we couldn't do customer service. And we opened up a customer service center and eventually got ourselves out of the hole. But, you know, then some of the lessons in PayPal were what happens when you have explosive growth and what do you do about it? And how do you get an organization to respond to it? That sort of thing. I mean, it's interesting in retrospect, a lot of people have this mentality now that customer service is everything. And, you know, the company's evil or bad if they're not going to respond to their customer support emails. What was it like to be in that environment where you're the guy who's the one ignoring the calls, you know? Well, it's chagrinning. We had people find out the address and drive to our office from his locations as far as, so our office was in Palo Alto, California, as far away as Arizona. Right. So someone's knocking at the door and they say they have customer service and they've driven here from Arizona <laughs> to yeah. deal with customer service. It's a little embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, no one wants to do that. It's never a good idea from a customer engagement point of view. But, you know, that's what happens when you're getting 5% daily compounded growth in terms of transaction volume. You just didn't predict for this. <laughs> right. It was new. Right. And it's generally a good idea to be, you know, customer service. Now, of course, one of the things that's an interesting feature of the net is that most successful things on the net have a substantial free component. They're either completely free altogether, or a lot of the rich basic thing is free, uh, like LinkedIn, for example. And the problem, of course, is, well, how much customer service do you provide for a free product? Because everyone kind of thinks, well, you know, I'm, I get customer service for a product, so I should be able to get someone on the phone and, you know, talk to them. Well, you know, a phone call costs, you know, maybe 10 bucks, right? So if you're giving a free product, giving up phone call customer service is actually kind of expensive. I think one of the things you're going to see evolve as a standard is kind of a notion of, well, free products basically have maybe email support and, you know, that sort of thing. And then, you know, paid products tend to have phone support. This is all kind of crystal balling the future of the internet. But it's there's some interesting changes happening in customer service. I guess we'll, we'll get into that soon with LinkedIn. Uh, my last question about PayPal, I think it's interesting that you came in as a board member and then you started doing operational roles. So I was wondering, what was that relationship like where you have here's, you know, the founding team where you probably, I, I guess you had more experience then, right? Or at least you'd grown and sold a business. Well, I had um, started uh, social and earlier. So I'd had experience with venture financing and For example, one of the buckets that I divide projects in is there's a V0 to V1 project. Think of it as software, like, you know, the first launch. There's one to one one, and there's one to two. Each of these games is three different games. And one of the things that you learn when you do startups is if you haven't done the V0 to V1 game, the game's different. It's like, oh, no, I've launched a new version before. No, launching one to two, two to three doesn't, not the same thing. Zero to one is an entirely new game. So it was helping them out with that. And Peter and I have been pretty close friends since, I guess, 1986. Right. So it's like knowing that. And then stepping off the board, I'd help them grow the company, hire their first QA guy, talk to all the executives. It was a relatively seamless transition into the operating of the company. You know, so it worked pretty well in that case, mostly because, you know, like, for example, the PayPal first office was, you know, on University Avenue and it was basically one big room. So when you showed up for a board meeting, you kind of said hello to the other five people that worked at the company. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> right. You know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it worked well. So jumping back now, so you finished with PayPal. It sounds like, I mean, you guys had a great exit. And, uh, you know, we've had David Sachs on the show, and he went down to Hollywood and yeah. made movies. And, you know, that sounds pretty fun. And, you know, you were doing some angel investing, too. So yeah. a lot of fun things you can do once you've sold a big company. 
why go through, you know, what, what drove you to go through the toil again? The e. G. Why am I insane? Is that, <laughs> is that the subtext of the question? Um, well, so for me, um, what PayPal gave me, I, I kind of my internal word for this is ransom, which is I have freedom of my time. Right. So once I, I, I made enough money at PayPal that I could kind of go travel if I wanted to, go to movies, buy a house, you know, all the kind of normal kind of middle class aspirational stuff. What I motivates me is big projects that change the world. And I thought about it and I went, all right, you know, am I interested in like writing a book or, or doing something like that, which would be, you know, me going and sitting somewhere and doing something. Or I'm interested in doing something more of kind of an organizational scale. And I realized organizational scale is what really mattered to me. And so what I did was I said, okay, well, I've had this idea cooking around for a couple of years. And I actually believe that I think there's some really important effects that I'm hoping LinkedIn will have on the whole world and U.S. included. And um, I actually think it's a very viable business. So I'm going to go do that and get that deployed. Because I think, I mean, part of the theme I think of the internet is, essentially power to the people. Uh, my friend Mark Pincus calls this the revolution of the ants. Yeah, I always thought I was like, mm, people aren't ants. But, you know, <laughs> Mark, you know, he, he has the, the heart's exactly in the right place, which is um, how you now that you have millions of people who can participate in this medium, it's much more democratic, voices can be heard, et cetera, what kind of new applications occur, and enabling individuals to have the best possible life they can is one of the things I think is really interesting with the net. So in PayPal, it's kind of like everyone can become a merchant. You can hang out a little shingled web and you can accept payment. That used to be only businesses that had to be validated by a merchant bank, right? In LinkedIn, it's every person as a professional can hang the shingle to the web and they can say what kinds of business they're interested in doing. And then they can find other professionals, either they already know or they want to get to know in order to connect with them and build business. And I mean, basically the future of the world, I think, is that every individual is becoming a small business. You have that already in terms of how like people change gigs every three or four years is even true in places like Japan now, right? Where, you know, the whole salary man thing has gone away. And so every individual becomes responsible for how they evolve their small business. Well, what kinds of things do you need? Well, you need new clients. Well, how do you get the new clients? Well, it's people who know you and trust you. Word of mouth referral is really big. You need to be able to uh, connect and find with other people when you're looking for things, either experts to help you solve problems or inside connection with a company because you want to do a BD deal with them, you want to have a job there, that sort of thing. These all involve a set of having a profile web and participating in a network. And that's what LinkedIn's about. So what crystallized the idea for you? What was the moment in your life where you thought, you know, this is what LinkedIn could be and this is, you know, what the function of this site is? Really, it was kind of coming back to, I suppose the original idea was I was thinking, uh, what were the parts of social at my first startup that really worked? And what were the parts that needed some evolution with understanding what kinds of things were possible at the net, in the net? And I guess it was probably kind of late 02 that I realized that in a sense, in the future, everyone's going to have a profile on the web, right? Or whatever the equivalent of the web is, maybe call the web, may not be, but a shingle out to the internet not only to benefit themselves as individuals, but also if they're working in a company to benefit their company. Because, for example, employee referral of hiring employees into a company is really valuable. Sorting out the noise of which BD deals a company should respond to and not is really valuable, that sort of thing. So it benefits both them and their company. And I realized that was the future. And then the whole question is, can you build the structure the right way so that each individual uh, has 
the right emotional and incentive relationship with it. So, for example, in 03, a lot of people, when we started LinkedIn, said, oh, you're crazy. These kind of networking products shouldn't be individual professionals, individual users. They should be enterprise products. So a corporation buys a product, like, for example, a sales force, and the whole sales force uses it. Well, the problem is salespeople have some incentive for using a kind of a networking product behind a firewall. But average people don't. Like if you came to me and you said, okay, you're a member of, you know, company X, would you please contribute your Rolodex to the Salesforce so they can go sell them? It's like, oh, no, these are my, these are my pals. <laughs> They're not going to be happy if I do that. And really your Rolodex is your own. It's actually all about, you know, again, power to the people and individuals. And once I realized that that was what I thought the future was, it was time to start because, you know, part of entrepreneurship is both predicting the future and bringing it in closer. When you launch this venture, if you look at it today, like how much of it was already structured in your head when you built this? Or was it kind of the type of thing where you just had some very basic functionality and there was a lot of evolution in the idea? Probably about 80% of the idea from original. Now, one thing that is certainly true, because I don't want our, any entrepreneur listeners to think that it's always planned out. But one of the things that I tell investors and entrepreneurs, especially for consumer internet, which is kind of where I'm a specialist, is I have yet to see a Series A business model be the business model at the end of the company, right? And sometimes if it just ends up being a media thing with raw advertising, fine. But whenever someone says, oh, I've got a business model, usually it ends up being a little different than you predict or a lot different. And so things and ideas evolve. And actually, one of the things that evolved at LinkedIn is we felt initially that what we do is we'd have kind of, we'd grow the user base and then people would be using it and then we would charge for certain kinds of usage. And what we realized was the mass product that we should give away to every professional should be free for every professional so that everyone has a reason to have a LinkedIn profile to participate, even if they don't have a intense business need right now, like they're trying to hire or find an expert or uh, reference check somebody or uh, you know find a job, all kinds of things that you would use an intense need. Give all the basic stuff away for free. And then when people are seriously using it, charge them. So if you're a hiring manager, you can post a job listing. That costs something, right? Um, if you're a BD person, you're looking for inside connections to companies and you need to do it at scale, that costs something. For example, the nuances of the idea we didn't actually have when we started because what we knew was most good consumer internet ideas start with getting traction in a market, right? You start with getting adoption and then you work out the other things later. So when you designed this, when you designed the first version, it seems very challenging because I imagine you and your whole team were very tech geeky people mm -hmm. and, you know, you want potentially every person in business, every person to sign up for this. What were some of the challenges behind, you know, avoiding just developing this for the way that you'd like to use it on oh. a very technical <laughs> level? One of the hardest challenges that LinkedIn has been navigating that our principal customer base is kind of like 27, 28 plus right? It's not actually college students. It's not high school students. They don't have a professional network worth a damn to help them get a job or, you know, and, and jobs are what they care about or manage their careers yet. Those are things that you start building as you leave college. Now, the thing that's interesting is, you know, Friendster and Facebook and MySpace all get these very strong accelerants because high school students and college students or whatever have lots of spare time, don't really care about the value of their connections, right? Will adopt because, you know, like most people are on all three, right? They have yeah. profiles on all three of them. And LinkedIn has had a much more steady, measured steady growth because once you're above 30, 
because this is kind of the way we characterize the people who use us. They have like kind of three attributes in their life. One is they're somewhere between married with kids and wanting a serious relationship. So it could be married or in a serious relationship or looking for one, but that's like one major chunk of their time. And especially, of course, as you get married and have kids, that's a huge amount of time. The second thing is they already have enough friends. Not that they're not open to meeting new friends, but they have enough, right? So like, for example, I, everyone that I've met who's over 30, if you say, oh, would you like to meet new friends? They're like, well, gosh, I have friends that I'm not spending time with already. <laughs> um, and so it's not no, but it's like, you know, I'm not looking for it. And the third one is their career started to matter, right? So they're thinking about how do I buy a house? How do I provide for retirement? I'm going to have a family. How do I put the kids through college? <laughs> you know, And you're beginning to have a point of inflection in your career that the next steps actually really move in terms of what you're doing. Well, so amongst that group, LinkedIn has to persuade them that we're valuable. Unlike, for example, MySpace or Facebook or Friendster, which is, wow, a place to play with my friends, and I have lots and lots of spare time because that's where people are at those cycles of their lives, it's a prove to me you're valuable. And so we've had a much more measured growth through doing that because, you know, we're now at 7.2 million and you know, growing about 400,000 a month. But it's really an effort to grow in this, this kind of demographic. And that's kind of more been the, it's not so much the tech, not tech as much as been the professional and, you know, kind of the young, you know, either high schooler or college student or just recently grad from college student who's kind of out there still doing, spending a lot of their time on social stuff. Now, on the tech stuff, ultimately, we know that the patterns that we've designed for, they're good economic patterns. They're not tech patterns. So take, for example, like one of the big challenges when you're finding a professional, whether it's someone to hire, uh, someone to work for, an expert, you got to find the right person. It's a single component failure. If you don't find the right person, it's very bad news, <laughs> right? So, well, how do you solve that problem? Well, you solve that problem by using a trusted referral, by talking to other people, that sort of thing. And so that's one of the reasons why, for example, most hires where you hire through an employer referral work a lot better. That's one of the reasons when, you, like, for example, if you're thinking, hmm, you know, I want to do a, you know, a pod show on entrepreneurship in China, you don't just kind of randomly put up an advertisement and take whoever walks in and says, I'm a Chinese entrepreneur. You ask people, hey, do you know someone who's good for this? <laughs> right? You know, that sort of thing. And you use other people's testimonial to you as a referential guide. And that's the basic pattern of LinkedIn. So it's kind of like using that six degrees of reference, that six degrees of trust as a way of navigating and building these key relationships is kind of what LinkedIn is all about. Now, I think it's not just tech. It, you know, we're also heavy in the financial services industry in New York and a bunch of other places. Half our user base is overseas, right? It applies in a lot of, you know, we have to localize our languages, but the pattern works in these countries. Uh, so my belief is it actually will be pretty global, although, of course, always there's cultural issues and that sort of thing. A quick break so I can thank our sponsors, SteadyMD. It was actually started by a longtime Venture Voice listener, and I'm really excited to have them as a sponsor because I've been trying it, and it's awesome. First, if you want to check it out, just go steadymd.com slash venturevoice. Let me tell you about it really quick. If you're anything like me, you probably don't want to go to the doctor right now. With SteadyMD, going to the doctor is like every other meeting nowadays. Just simply use Zoom. SteadyMD, it gives you your personal doctor. It's telehealth done right. You start by going to their website, steadymd.com slash venturevoice to take a quiz. I, I gave it a shot. 
it matched me with a doctor. It actually, I, I love to go on uh, really long cycling trips that found me a doctor that's also into that. It kind of matches you based on your lifestyle and your health needs so you can really connect with the doctor. Then you do a one-hour appointment with your doctor. And you start a real relationship. It's kind of like the old school concept of having a doctor that really gets to know you. And then your doctor is available to you anytime by text, phone, or a video chat. What I think is really cool is that I can do this all from the comfort of my apartment. I don't have to be stuck in a waiting room anymore. They can still send prescriptions to my local pharmacy a few blocks away. They have an app. It keeps all my medical records in one place. You get unlimited access to this doctor for only $99 a month, no additional fees. And SteadyMD will even help you understand and get the most from your health insurance, even though insurance isn't required. Works in all 50 states. Check out SteadyMD.com slash VentureVoice. That URL is important so they know we sent you. SteadyMD.com slash VentureVoice. And you can take the quiz for free while you listen to the rest of this show. Now enjoy. When you were building this, both in the early stages and now, how do you split your time up between doing product and business development? So, you know, you have so many hours in the day, you could either spend time adding new features, making the product cooler, or you could spend your time trying to get covered in the press, doing a deal with a media partner or some other types of, you know, outbound biz dev PR, that area. Well, let's see. So in consumer internet product is king. You have to get something that's valuable to people who are on the net so that it's worth their time, it's worth their attention. There's, think of how many hundreds of thousands and millions of URLs are out there. I mean, your average consumer on the internet is kind of swamped with, you know, uh, all these things going on. So it has to be something pretty valuable, and that's got to be the key thing. Now, once that's in motion, you know, especially like early stage and young companies, PR is pretty useful. Because if you've got something kind of interesting and hot, the easiest way for it to get to your average consumer's attention is they trust journalists and big brands of, you know, media vehicles that they've already had an alignment with to be a good editorial filter, right? So you go off and, you know, you either get on the right blogs or podcasts or in the right magazine or that sort of thing. And then people go, oh, that's cool. Let me go check that out. And that's a good way of kind of beginning the launch. Now, ultimately... You can't drive a distribution strategy on PR alone. It's got to stand on its own in some way. And that's one of the things you've got to work out. And by the time you get to BD, there are some BD things that really, really work. But generally speaking, the best BD is the equivalent of a very natural alignment of a product, right? So, for example, Google launches its map APIs. And when people put up like Craigslist, you know, housingmaps.com on top of the Google Maps, it's not a BD relationship. It's just, ooh, these are, that's cool. This becomes functional putting those things together. And those are the right sorts of things to focus on for that. So tell me about the company now. Like, you know, what's the headcount? How much financing have you taken to get here? What's the revenue like? How's the profitability? We're profitable. That's good news. You know, my VP of marketing wants to hold on to the revenue number because he wants to wait until it's stunningly big. It's pretty big already, but he wants to like kind of use that as a piece of press press news. And that's the way that kind of thing works. Uh, we got about 56 people. We have 7.2 million people in the system growing at 400,000. We have, there's a tremendous number of searches run every day. And each month, all of our metrics, growth, usage, revenue is a record on the last month, which, you know, those are the kind of things investors usually like to see. 
And so things are going pretty well. I mean, I still think it's interesting. I think that we haven't, um, there's a lot of discussion because Malcolm Gladwell's really good book about the tipping point. And it's, you know, it's a good book. People should read it. I actually think LinkedIn hasn't hit its tipping point yet because I don't think people have gotten to the realization of how much it really can fit into their lives. So for example, if you go up to your average professional street right now and you say, oh, well, you should have a profile out on the web, right? You know, stating who you are and what kinds of things you do and what kinds of things you're interested in for your company and what kinds of things you're interested in for yourself. Most professionals kind of look at you and go, mm, really? Like it hadn't really occurred to them. And yet that is clearly what should be good for them. And that's part of what LinkedIn's trying to do. And, you know, we have like, like, I don't know if you've done this. Um, we have public profiles that we then, you know, can you know, publish the web and we actually try to make it so Google and Yahoo, when someone types in your name, they'll find your public profile. So they find you, right? As opposed to that, you know, as opposed to some, like some other person with your name or random articles about yourself. And one of the funniest things when I searched for myself, um, I guess the beginning of LinkedIn is I found that as a 12-year-old, I had published scenarios for Dungeons and Dragons. And I found that there was a author scenario pack on the first page of Google. I'm like, no, 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 this is not me now. Like, it's cool, but yeah. it's not me now. Right? Um, anyway, so... So you're forever uh, so, haunted. <laughs> well, it's all cool. But I think your average professional has not yet realized what a central role we can play and how they accelerate and manage their career. And that's one of the things we're actually working pretty hard on now is getting the features and the ease of use out there where they can go, oh, that's cool. I see what I can do with this now. So tell me about how you get there. I mean, right now, you know, it's kind of got this, it uh, seems like basic core functionality of just knowing who all your professional contacts are. And then I guess that's kind of a platform for the rest of your features. But what feature do you think could make it, I guess, more viral or just kind of push that trajectory to the tipping point, as you well, said? We will be releasing some pretty interesting features in January. That's what we're working on now. I don't think we'll pre-announce them yet. But, Except you know, on this podcast? Or? Even not on this podcast, <laughs> I regret to say. But for example, there are things, like for example, most people don't realize you can have a public profile on LinkedIn. So in, in late October, we're going to be doing a big campaign of when someone Googles your name, would you like them to find what you want to say about yourself? Answer for most people is, yeah, actually, that'd be kind of cool. So that's kind of a feature we have already. I actually don't think most people realize how many people they already probably know who are on LinkedIn, right? So, you know, kind of like, hey, look, there's a whole bunch of people here that, you know, you should connect with. I'll, I'll iterate on this piece because so one of the things we launched recently was recommendations because one of the things that people use is, hey, who's a good lawyer? Who's a good attorney? Who's a good mechanic? That kind of stuff. You know, who's a good um, uh, even babysitter, right, as the case may be. And these are so important that people go and ask people, like, who do you think, right? Well, one of the things that LinkedIn's trying to do is you can actually help your friends by making recommendations and then they can use that as a way of finding oh, well, I'm looking for a really good accountant. Oh, cool. You know, or someone to help me with taxes. Oh, cool. Greg knows somebody and Greg said good things. Okay, I'm going to go use that. So we have that already. Well, obviously we're going to iterate on that. So we launched it with people and with services and that sort of thing. But, you know, we'll eventually get to books and, you know, charities and other kinds of things that are the kind of thing that people go and ask people about and say, hey, which of these should I pay attention to? That kind of thing. That's an instance of a feature that we've, built part of and launched already, but we'll be iterating on Q1 and that sort of thing. A lot of other social networks have allowed through APIs or just having kind of some amount of open standard have allowed other people to innovate on their platform. So, you know, there are plenty of things you could throw on your MySpace page made by other companies. And, you know, Facebook has an API now. 
Have you thought about that so far? It seems as though everything you can do with LinkedIn is through LinkedIn itself. So we've definitely thought about that. And there will definitely be, we'll definitely do some stuff like that. We try to be really careful of people's, people care a lot more about their professional contacts than they do about their social contacts. In part because your professional contacts are the kind of thing that, you know, dictate your future, your career, a new job, an investment opportunity. So they're very, very careful about that. And we try to respect that. Matter of fact, our primary customer is each individual. And so, like, for example, if you, uh, you know, upload your address book to LinkedIn, we don't do anything with that other than tell you who else is in LinkedIn so you can find it. Find out, you know, oh, cool, you know, Fred's here, you know, Sarah's here, that sort of thing. But we will do that. And the principal issue will be making sure each individual buys into it. Now, we do some stuff already. So, for example, you know, we, unlike a bunch of other people, actually allow you to download the complete list of all your contacts, to put it in an Excel file or put it in a in your Outlook or whatever you want, because again, our view is they're your contacts, you know. So if we can facilitate by downloading, and so that's that's the kind of thing that we've done already. But eventually, we'll want to put on an API where people can say, "Oh, I'd like to add this feature to my LinkedIn account," and I'll do that with this other thing. So it's literally a question of development time. We just got to get to it. So what do you worry about with this business? I mean, there's always risks and you know things that might stunt you from growth. What what keeps you up at night? I mean, we're in a good space now, right? So there's no professional network that's kind of nearly our size, right? In terms of there's no one even approaches 7.2 million users. We uh, have a pretty loyal fan following. We're profitable. Right? The revenue is growing month by month. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of very good things. The principal thing that makes me worried, I think, is trying to communicate to kind of the mainstream users, you know, say, like, for example, take, take the word networking. Most people, networking is kind of actually a vaguely negative word because they, it connotes people who are like, oh, can I have your business card? <laughs> can you help me as opposed to can we help each other? And LinkedIn is actually designed for let's help each other. The way that profession, professionals in the modern world manage a career is you have a group of people who are your tribe, your people. How do you help each other? LinkedIn is made for that. It's not so that networkers can use you. It's so that you and your colleagues, your friends, your pals can help each other. And how do we get people to understand that and start adopting that as a good practice is the principal thing that, you know, I wake up at five in the morning and go, oh, got an idea, got an idea, <laughs> right? That sort of thing. And, you know, can we be as big as we'd like? Because one of the things, I mean, I mean, at a very high line, the way that I hope that LinkedIn is going to change the world is, so you have a whole you know, web of people on LinkedIn, people connected to people and people giving each other endorsements and, and being able to access each other, recommend people, recommend a lawyer, that sort of thing. The 50,000 foot civic mission of LinkedIn is to make good people stronger and to make people who mistreat other people, could call them bad people if you wanted, uh, weaker, right? And the whole idea is, well, if we're out there in a web of relationships where it's easy for you to track me down, find other people who say good or bad things about myself, you know, that sort of thing, um, then we should make the world a better place because people who deal respectfully with people are honorable, keep their agreements, that sort of thing. When someone checks them out, they find, oh, cool. Okay, I'll do business with this person. And when people who are, you know, who break their word, who kind of mislead people, et cetera, et cetera, you check them and go, oh, not going to do business with those people. That's the way that LinkedIn is trying to change the world. And my hope is that we will get there. And my hope is we'll get there sooner than later. I noticed one of the big problems with LinkedIn is that all the times I'll go to a networking event, I'll, next day I get lots of invites from people who I just met, yep. you know, for two minutes yep. over a drink. And 
now that we want to be on LinkedIn. I know a lot of people out there accept those because they don't want to make the person feel bad or out of novelty. Then it's very hard to take them off. And then you were also saying making um, bad people weaker. But, you know, there's, of course, no, I can endorse people, but I can't, uh, whatever the opposite of an endorsement is, I can't, I can't criticize them on their profile. How do you manage those, both, you know, the uh, the kind of illegitimate friends and the, um, you know, and also kind of negative experiences, sharing that? So uh, let's do the two in order. So first, the uh, over, what we call is over-enthusiastic inviters or illegitimate friends. I mean, there's a set of people who think, oh, everyone should be connected to everybody and everyone should refer everyone. And they don't realize that actually what reference is supposed to be is I refer to someone, you to someone based on what I know about you, on my ability to say something about you. Oh, he's a good person. He's hardworking. He's diligent. He's honorable. He's trustworthy. He's a close friend of mine. You know, do me a favor. You know, that sort of thing. We will have some features launching next year that will help with that, help tune that, right? So that... Uh, it'll ease all the awkward, oh, sh- I don't want to say no, <laughs> right? You know, that sort of thing. And and we have a design coming for that, which I'm very comfortable with. And, you know, at the moment, what I just say is you can defer people. So you can just say neither yes nor no. And also the, the standard that I use to connect with people is someone that I would at least occasionally refer to other people I know based on knowledge, right? So if I even talk to someone for an hour or two, but I really like them and I could go, oh, they're smart and they're sane, they're interesting. Well, that's referential knowledge, right? That's actually, I can introduce the person and say, hey, the person was kind of cool, talked to them for an hour, they had some great ideas. Well, that is frequently a good enough thing to differentiate that person from being a stranger, you know, signal from noise. So the second one on the on the reputation side. So so what LinkedIn is designed to be is so that every professional, every individual in the world can put their best foot forward, right? So the reason why endorsements are only positive is because it's my little shingle, my profile to the web. And, you know, I don't want, you know, like graffiti on it. And I don't want, you know, this person sucks. Everyone has some people who dislike them for whatever reason. It's, it's my shiny shingle, right? Yeah. Now, better people should be able to create shinier shingles, right? People who have more people go, oh, yeah, I love working with him. He was really helpful. It, you know, he got stuff done when we worked together. It was, you know, that kind of thing. But what we have is what we call foreground and background reputation, right? So the foreground is how I establish myself with you. So, you know, if you went to my profile on LinkedIn, you'd find 41 endorsements and you'd find different people who've worked with me in different contexts, managers, employees, partners, all kind of giving some character to how working with me is. And you can kind of see a pattern in that. Background is, so say, for example, you wanted to check me out and you wanted to find people who like, well, okay, what does Reed really like? Right? Okay, I see all the shiny single, but what does Reed really like? Well, We already have this kind of reference check search. You go to reference check and you type in PayPal 2000-2002. And then we search for people that are close to you that worked at PayPal at that time. Well, you can go get connected to them. Like say, for example, you were friends with Sue who knows Fred who worked at PayPal at that time. And you get to Fred and you say, okay, tell me what Reed's really like. Well, that's the background reference check. And we don't think those things will ever be written. No one has an incentive to write negative references like that. But when approached through a social web of trust, when Sue says, hey, please help out my friend Greg, this would be really useful. And Fred says, sure, sure, you know, here's what I think, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then that's where you get the background. So we accomplish both positive and negative, but the positive stuff is kind of what shows on the site and how I present myself to you. And the potential negative stuff is how you background check me with your own network. What's the most useful connection you've made on LinkedIn? I met Mark Andreessen as part of uh, having him invest in the Series A. And Mark's a really good guy and turns out to be unlike most celebrities, not allow his celebrity to go to his head. And, and he's 
very brash and has great opinions and sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. But unlike celebrities, he understands, you know, I'm mostly right, but sometimes, okay, debate with me. That was a good one. Um, I reconnected with a friend from high school who yeah. found me, right, that I never would have found. We'd had parallel careers. He'd worked at Amazon, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. That was another good one. Uh, you know, we've hired a couple of people who've come to us, you know, on referral. Oh, this is cool. You know, do this. I invested in Flickr, right? Yeah. Because the founders of Flickr found me through, <laughs> through LinkedIn, right? So it's so many. It's hard to like, it's like, okay, yeah, that's right. Stuart and Katarina. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I guess it's become part of your life. Yeah, enough. exactly. Well, I think, and I don't think it's just me as CEO and as founder. I actually think once you start realizing this is like, it's, like, for example, the way I go to a conference is I go hang out with the people I like, and then I meet the people they talk to. The people that you think are smart and interesting, there's a much higher percentage of the people that they're hanging with are smart and interesting. So same principle on LinkedIn. You get to see a lot here in the Valley between, I guess, you know, all the great metrics you must get with LinkedIn, but also as an angel investor, seeing what's going on with other companies. So I thought it was interesting. Um, you were given kind of the classic advice on funding, have enough cash to keep a company alive. It seems as though there's a lot of kind of revisiting that old adage now with a lot of people out there saying, oh, you can build a business on next to nothing now. You know, servers are cheaper. You can be more capital efficient. Do you think the dynamics of starting a business have changed a lot or do you think it's uh, just like it's been forever? Well, it's certainly a lot cheaper, right? So one of the things that a lot of people, my friend Joe Krause, et cetera, have noticed is that launching something is a lot cheaper than it used to be. There's cheap equipment, there's, you know, servers, Linux, et cetera. There's open source, you know, you can use uh, the search engines that are, you know, that you can deploy really quickly. And so all of that is definitely, uh, it's now cheaper. But on the other hand, of course, with that being cheaper means that there's lots more entrants, right? There's tons, tons, tons more people. So everyone's like, oh, venture dead, you know, don't need to raise $5 million. Actually, if you have a thousand people going out launching for 100K or 200K, the one that can raise 5 million and deploy that effectively has a huge competitive advantage, right? So I think all the people who are saying, oh, the consumer internet venture unnecessary anymore, just kind of don't understand it. It's not to say that you can't start and then go get venture, which is the most frequent plan. So it tends to be, you know, you quit your job, you do something, you get somewhere, you, you make a certain amount of traction, you get some annual investment, you make a certain amount of traction, you do venture. You know, that being said, it's still, because, you know, the whole question is usually, like another piece of advice that I give entrepreneurs is do things that have massive upside. It's going to be the same amount of blood and sweat and tears and, and you know, everything else for small upside and massive upside. So focus on something that can go really, really big because you're going to, you're basically going to dump blood into it by the buckets anyway. So the answer is yes, it's, it's cheaper now and there are new rules because of it, but it hasn't like eliminated the old rules. So last question, uh, or kind of, uh, I guess, a request. Can you make your pitch to entrepreneurs out there for why they should use LinkedIn and how they should use LinkedIn? Ah, so LinkedIn is currently the, so the way, basic way to use it is get into LinkedIn, get connected to the set of people. You can, you can upload your out just to see who's already there. So if you're nervous about inviting new people, that's fine. Just connect to the people you already know and trust that are on LinkedIn. Then it becomes a really useful directory of expertise for the kinds of connections. Entrepreneurs are starving for the right kinds of connections. They need experts in the market they're talking to. They need advisors to tell them, 
Because, you know, usually, like, you've got this cool idea for podcasting, but you need to solve search engine optimization, you need to solve finance, you need to figure out how this will play in terms of the big media, and all that kind of stuff. So go find people, right? Find people to help you. Find people to be supportive. Like, entrepreneurs, you know, it's never a sit in a room and create something by yourself. You're out there in the flow. And frequently, of course, entrepreneurs are, well, what if I tell someone my idea? It's like, your idea isn't anything until it starts going, right? Ideas are great. But traction, reality, go out, you know, launch something, get customers. And so so LinkedIn is useful for finding all of the right people that are the right people to support your uh, effort. Everything from investment to collaborators to experts to talk to, to advisors, the whole thing. And matter of fact, in Silicon Valley, my guess is 95% plus the people who are pitching venture people are in LinkedIn. Actually, one of the funniest things that happened recently, I gave a talk at Yahoo about two or three months ago. And the guy who was interviewing me, he asked the question instead of who's in LinkedIn, he said, he said, who's not in LinkedIn? Out of like 500 people in the audience, two people started raising hand and their hands went down really fast. So, <laughs> right? so it's get into it and start using yeah. it. And the most frequent mistake in LinkedIn is they think I got connected. Now what? Well, it's a tool. Use it. Right? You're looking for an expert on open source? Go type open source into the search box and see what it gives you. You know, that kind of thing. So anyway, that's the, that's the basic advice. Great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, Reed. Thank you for having me. That's the interview. Hope you enjoyed the show. The three things I really took away from this, and it was so fun for me to listen to this more than 10 years later, is one, hearing how Reed was really kind of, you know, more than just being an entrepreneur, he was almost acting as a philosopher or a sociologist, just really trying to figure out this social nuance of what it would take to get everyone to essentially upload their resume or their work history to LinkedIn early on. And again, it's so hard to place yourself back in this time, but it it just used to be that it felt like if you were putting your resume online, you were definitely looking for a new job and it felt crass. Now it's so normal and he has had to think of so many clever ways to overcome what was almost a social taboo at the time. And I think as an entrepreneur, it's so easy to get caught up in all the other elements of running a startup. You forget to put yourself in the user's shoes. So really take that away. The entrepreneur is almost the chief philosopher of the company. Another thing that I was reminded of that it's one of the things that inspired me to start my company, Muckrack, which is a PR software platform, helps you contact journalists, follow the news, etc., is Reed talking about PR and Reed talking about how it's useful you can trust journalists. It's a great way to get the message out there. At the same time, he reminds people you can't use PR alone, which I 100% agree with. I think PR is one of the tools in your toolkit, but it's super powerful. Getting that legitimacy that PR brings, uh, you know, the third-party endorsement from journalists can really make a big difference. And I see that over and over in our customers and just other entrepreneurs that I'm advising and working with to get their word out there. You know, it's also just such an interesting slice in tech history. And my takeaway is that when you're kind of growing up as an entrepreneur, a lot of the people you're working with who haven't yet made it all that big go on to greatness. So don't take them for granted. I mean, just in this interview, he mentions Mark Pincus, who later went on to be one of the first Facebook investors, along with Reid Hoffman, too. And Mark Pincus launched Zynga, which had a, uh, a huge trajectory. He mentions Peter Thiel, and we all know uh, Peter Thiel has made billions and billions. And he mentions that he invested in Flickr. 
Flickr ended up exiting to Yahoo for, I think, about 30 million. But the co-founder of Flickr, Stuart Butterfield, ended up later launching Slack, which is now huge and worth much more than Flickr ever was. So who knew that Stuart, the guy behind this little photo site that you know, seemed like a, a cute project would go on to start, you know, a multi-billion dollar public company in the future. And it's something I think about in my own career where, you know, as I was interviewing all these huge entrepreneurs back in 05, 06, a lot of my peers went on to greatness and uh, that peer network ended up being super valuable. So don't forget your peers. I was just digging through my old iTunes reviews. I found this one from 2009. Uh, a lot of people don't even remember the podcast existed in 2009, but this one was from Bob, titled Nerdy Voice with Panache. I'll take it. Bob goes on to say, so inspirational, intriguing. Seriously, one of the best podcasts I found on iTunes. Keep it up and thanks for the free education. Smiley emoji. Thanks, Bob. And, you know, I'm coming back with this podcast. I started it back in 2000. And five, it was one of the first podcasts, probably the first podcast that was an interview series with entrepreneurs. I had lots of great people on like Reed. I'm re-releasing those shows, but I'm also now going to be bringing you new shows with entrepreneurs today who are doing awesome work. So please, please help me get the word out about this. And it's so fun to come back to the podcast. I took pretty much a 10-year hiatus while I built my businesses, which I still run and are going great. Muckrack, which is a PR software platform with over a thousand customers. We have over 80 employees all over the world. It's profitable. We've never raised any venture money. Also started the Shorty Awards, which is now the leading award for the best of social media. And the way I was able to build these businesses without needing to raise money and still get this kind of reach largely was the lessons I learned from doing this podcast. And that's really what makes me excited to bring this podcast back and share all these lessons with you so you can start your own great businesses and not have to learn every single lesson the hard way. Just a couple of times, maybe you can take a lesson from somebody else. But I promise you from my own experience, there's still plenty of lessons uh, we all learn the hard way. So anyhow, I'm, I'm so excited to be back with this podcast and I'd really appreciate your help getting the word out. Just pop onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. I would love to hear your feedback. Best thing is to send it to me on Twitter or Instagram. On both platforms, I'm really easy to find. I'm simply at Gregory. I signed up to both way early and was able to just get at Gregory because it was open. No one had grabbed it yet. They didn't even get a special favor. So just go Twitter, Instagram, type in at Gregory, follow me, tweet me, message me your comments. You can also go to our website, VentureVoice.com and share your feedback privately there. I'm happy to answer any questions. And uh, I found in every business I've launched, it's always the feedback is where the best ideas come from. So please share your ideas. I read everything. Thanks again for tuning in. Look forward to reconnecting with you on the next episode of Venture Voice. 